Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Reading Materials podcast. My name is Lucia, and I'm joined by my two friends, Jess and Maria, to continue our discussion of the A Court of Thorns and Roses series by Sarah J. Mass. So this episode, we're going to have spoilers in um, A Court of Mist and Fury up to the end of chapter 23. So don't listen if you haven't gotten that far in the book. So that means we've already covered A Court of Thorns and Roses, the first book. So for anyone who needs a refresher, Jess, could you tell us briefly, 10 sentences or less, the main plot of the first book? The first book follows Fair, our main character. It starts off with She's in the woods and she slaughters a wolf who she believes is a threat to herself and her people. Turns out this wolf was in fact a fairy and kind of to make amends for killing him, you know, with undue reason, she is sent to go live across the wall where the fairies live, the fae, kind of as a tribute and, you know, to to kind of make amends for what she had done. There Mm -hmm. she meets and eventually falls in love with Tamlin, the High Lord of the Spring Court, However, it's not all so lovely. There's a bit of a bad villain. Her name is Amarantha. And basically she kind of captures everyone in Perithian and she kind of holds them all. She holds everyone's power. Everyone is kind of stuck. They can't defeat her until Fair comes along who breaks the curse that Amarantha has placed on Tamlin. Fair does, uh, she has to complete some trials. She frees everyone. In the process of doing this, however, Amarantha kills her. And then Fair is reborn as one of the High Fae at the very end of the book. Mm-hmm. And everyone Excellent. kind of seems to go home and live happily ever after. But do they? As we will discuss today, probably not as happy as, as it all seems. So the first couple of episodes, we went into a lot of depth. We took everything practically chapter by chapter. We're really going to try our best not to do that this week. So we've come up with a couple of main talking points that we want to get through. So let's start off with maybe the biggest topic, if that's okay with you two, and that is the general depiction of Feyre's mental health through the first 23 chapters of this book. Jess, you already mentioned that at the end of the first book, she has to go through some trials, one of which is that she has to kill three fairies, and she does so in order to free Tamlin. And then she herself is killed by Amarantha and it comes back as a high fae. So this has obviously left a huge mark on Feyre at the beginning of the book. Maria, do you want to expand on how she's dealing with the events of the last book? Yeah, so she is in a place of deep despair. Um, She's like, not only as well as she's suffering from the guilt and the anguish, but also the own the terror that she had personally for like the the three months that her trials took place so she has like her own demons that she was a victim of and then she also has this like loathing for herself because she views herself as a murderer of innocence um so a lot of the thoughts that she has is guilt that she should be the person who's dead not the innocence and a lot of things very easily bring her back to like the traumatic moments she can't paint anymore because she can't look at bright colors she can't see red because it reminds them of blood she can't hunt anymore which as Jessie mentioned in the kind of summary is was who she was as a person she was a huntress that provided for her family she can't really do 
anything that is normal, usual or natural for her anymore because she associates almost every action of her past self with the murder as she sees it, the sacrifice that she made for everyone as everybody else sees it. And any reaction that anyone she has, uh, any interaction with, has with her, they're odd and they're like uh, so thankful to her and it just makes her more guilty. So she's in a really bad place and just self-loathing. She's sick every night. She can't sleep. She can barely eat. She is in a really dark place. Yeah, well, fair. I mean, fair is suffering and kind of what's shocking is that I don't know if we can say nobody cares, but nobody's helping. Nobody steps in. We learn that Tamlin also has his own kind of trauma as well. But he's just kind of, instead of the two of them kind of working as a team to help each other out, they're both just kind of fighting their own battles every night. Nobody's talking about anything. And it's just, it's not, nobody seems to be really making any efforts to heal, heal themselves or anyone else. It's all about presenting a strong image, but there's kind of nothing happening internally to back that up. Yeah, exactly. So Farah and Tamlin are back at the spring court, seemingly happy together. They are engaged, about to be married. But as you've both pointed out, they're both suffering immensely and not talking to each other. I kind of get the feeling that Farah would be very open to talking to Tamlin about what she's going through. But Tamlin has kind of put up this wall around himself and he doesn't want to talk about anything that had happened and just kind of look towards the future to this bright future that they're going to have together and bring hope to people that, you know, their love is going to, I don't know, make everyone feel safe and happy again. But they both have extreme PTSD and it is really, really difficult to read Feyre's internal monologues or like her thoughts about herself and how she views herself and how just trapped and suffocated she feels at the spring court because as you've said nobody's really helping her deal with her trauma she wants to be useful Tamlin won't let her go anywhere he won't really let her do anything and even when she tries to help people rebuild everyone's just reaction is no 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 you've already done enough you know you've already sacrificed enough of your time we're fine actually I also would add in that uh as well some people are like some of Tamlin's guards are um they're like oh we saw your fight you know like um and they're talking about it like it was a sports event so some people the people who aren't awestruck and thankful are making jokes and making light conversation of some of the things that she was put through so it's not only that pretty inconsiderate yeah like she's not just not getting support some people are actually using it as a source of entertainment did you guys think about like in the first book Alice had a bit of not like a temper but like she had some fire she wasn't afraid to like talk to fair or say anything and she was like you know someone should give out to Lucian and stuff but then they came back and like I was kind of disappointed that Alice didn't try and help fair more yeah I thought about that too and it almost seems like everyone's attitude towards Tamlin was nearly guided by his opinion of himself so like when he was like weak and defeated you know like he needed to be bolstered he needed to be supported he you could talk back to him but now he's come back and he's at his full powers and he thinks that he's invincible now so nobody challenges him at all in any way 
and it it goes from Lucian, who is the next in order to the the lowest people that like nobody seems to speak up for her, even people who previously had authority who had sway with Tamlin. They have nothing now. Yeah, you bring up a good point, Jess. I hadn't really thought about Alice's character much at the beginning of this book, but you're right. Like in the previous book, she was mentioned quite a lot, and obviously she was the only other female character that Vera was interacting with at the Spring Court. At the beginning of A Court of Mist and Fury, we've brought in Ianthe, is how I'm going to pronounce her name. She's one of the priestesses, and Feyre has kind of latched onto her as her support system, but Ianthe isn't really doing anything that supportive, in my opinion. She's just kind of telling Feyre what to do, and you're right. I would have hoped that Alice, who still seems to be around because she's still there to help Feyre get dressed and do her hair and everything, and she was kind of a maternal character in the previous book, so it is disappointing that she doesn't really do anything. But I kind of agree with what Maria said. Maybe she's just scared of Tamlin now. Like, Tamlin's behavior is quite erratic and, you know, aggressive at times. He's not the most understanding character, let's put it that way, in the first Mm -hmm. Uh, third of this book so maybe she just feels like it's not her place anymore to to speak up or yeah I don't know I hadn't really given it much thought what do you think she should have done do you think she just should have told fair you know you can always talk to me or spoken up on her behalf to Tamlin or what would you have liked to see I think she even should have just encouraged fair to even just eat like to get up in the morning and go to breakfast because we get to the point where Fair is like sleeping into lunch and maybe then she doesn't even go eat lunch. Mm. Like I just kind of would have wished that Alice would have stepped in and be like, look, you're losing a lot of weight. Maybe you should go have some breakfast. I'll bring you some breakfast. I'll bring you some of that delicious hot chocolate I brought you in the first book. Mm -hmm. Just something like that. Not even like anything that would overstep her bounds. Just like, here's some food. I noticed you're getting pretty skinny. Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. It would have been nice for someone else to just be some kind of support to Feyre at the beginning. Yeah, even in just the most basic sense. Like, Mm. I I get what you're saying, that she probably doesn't want to overstep her mark by, like, stepping in as a... any kind of, like, you know, friend-type therapy, but she's clearly suffering both mentally, but then that's carrying through to her physical condition as well. Yeah, but I mean, we've already mentioned Lucian as well. Every I feel like everyone knows she's not coping. But and for whatever reason, but yeah, exactly, but nobody does anything. And I feel like it must be because they're afraid of what Tamlin will do. Yeah. Otherwise, why wouldn't they? I think that's it though. I think like everyone knows his temper that's recognized even when he's not at full power everyone knows how he ended amarantha's life and everyone knows how quickly he can react and how brutally he can react and his mantra is everything is fine now so to even ask her if she's not okay is defying his order that everything is fine now so i think it like that everyone who's failing her 
is failing her probably seeing what's in front of them but also knowing that they can't say you know are you okay because she has to be okay they've been told by their leader she's okay everything is okay he's okay it's all fine now that's what I think it is that's so messed up that everyone turns the blind eye because they're afraid of Tamlin Mm. like if it's that yeah but I also wonder to what extent maybe they don't fully grasp just how much she's suffering with her guilt because we touched on this in you know when we were talking about the first book but like these characters are centuries old like Tamlin is over 500 years old, Lucian probably the same. They've lived through a war. They fought in wars, you know, they've probably killed a lot of fae and like a lot of creatures. They've had their cam- families killed. Yeah, exactly, like they've gone them themselves have gone through so much trauma. I wonder if they just on some level have become desensitized or don't even view her actions of killing those two fae as perhaps something that she should feel guilty about. And so maybe they just don't understand and don't ask her. I think that's actually really supported by the fact that it's noted again and again that she seems to still have a mortal heart, you know, Mm. that they recognize Mm -hmm. that she must only be feeling these feelings because she has, they will say they have like, she has an immortal heart or a mortal heart and an immortal body or a mortal soul and an immortal body. So they're recognizing that, that this, um, sympathy this like guilt is unusual for a high fae so i do think there's an element of their lives and also possibly just the like culture they grew up in the mindset that they have that they don't see it as anything other than check a box i agree i hadn't considered that but now that you've said it i i see exactly what you mean i think that could explain some of it too yeah i mean to be honest i hadn't considered it until i started talking about it but (laughs) yeah because I was just thinking about you know stuff that happens at the beginning of this book and what we find out about a lot of the characters and their actions previously like there's been a lot of murder in a lot of these characters pasts so maybe they just don't see it as such a big deal anymore which I mean is in and of itself worrying and and horrible Mm -hmm. I'm not justifying it in any way I just wonder if maybe it has a it they haven't clocked on to the fact that she feels so guilty yeah I think that they should though because I mean obviously without saying like oh I wouldn't feel guilty if I did this but maybe somebody else would they should see that she is so physically altered like not just in appearance which Jesse noted but also like for Tamlin he's seeing that she can't sleep through a night without getting up and being sick because of the nightmares and everybody else can see that she doesn't do anything ever anymore when she was there Mm. as as a human she was walking or she was painting she was always doing something and she's not doing anything anymore but well, she does walk, I suppose, but, you know, being um, sat around with Ayanta all day. So everybody should see that there's something there, even if they themselves don't know the source of it, like couldn't understand that she would feel guilty over that. They should see that her behavior is completely different and they're not. Well, they're probably seeing it, but they're not acting on it, which actually links in with 
another point that we're going to talk about, which is Tamlin as a leader, that this is one of the important things of him as a leader, that like everyone is afraid his court is ruled by fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jess, do you want to tell us a bit about Tamlin's behavior as, as leader in these first few chapters? Tamlin is really trying to craft this image of stability, of kind of, I mean, power, basically. Let's call a spade a spade. It's power. He's got himself, mm. Lucian, and Ianth, one of the high priestesses. And he also has Fair, kind of the, the saviour of Prithian, basically. And it's so important that they all present themselves as a strong unit that Fair can't be seen to be training with her powers or learning to fight or anything, because why would she need this? When Tamlin's there, everything is, everything is okay. Everything's under control. Another thing we kind of see with this leadership is the tithe. So this is like, I think it's kind of probably modeled on like, you know, in medieval times when people had to pay their taxes and they just came into the king and they were like, here's this, whatever I have that's equivalent to whatever my tax payment is. And we see again, Tamlin is kind of the strong leader, no emotion. And if somebody can't pay their tithe, he is granted a hunting right where he can go and kill them if they can't pay their taxes, essentially, which is pretty insane. And then, possible spoiler, for the next quarter of the book, Mm -hmm. we learn that the other courts don't enact this tithe, that it's only the Spring Court forces this kind of upon every single citizen. And only the High Lord of Spring does this thing where he can go and hunt down the people who aren't able to to pay it. Well, I also would add that um, when he's questioned on why he does things this way, he just says, oh, because they were always done this way. Because my father did them this way. It's just, it, he doesn't yeah, even... Which is such a mindless doesn't excuse. have a reason for it. Just goes, oh yeah, they were always like this. He His reasoning is, it's always been done this way. Let's not shake the boat. And oh, we're probably going to do this in the future anyway, once we have children and my son, because it's going to be a boy, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next High Lord of the Spring Court will also enact this tithe and traditions will be kept, etc., etc., but yeah, the scene at the tithe when one of the water rates can't pay her tax and she says that, you know, the lake is empty, there is literally no fish, they themselves are starving, so how could they possibly give food away to Tamlin? He has no sympathy at all. And we have another example of Feyre and her, in quotation marks, human heart. The fact that she takes pity on the water wraith and gives her some of her own jewellery, so that she can then pay Tamlin. And this is seen as an affront, this is seen as an insult to Tamlin and his leadership, and they have a huge fight about it. So, yeah, Tamlin is really... just seems to have, like, his blinkers on, or however you want to phrase it, but he just doesn't want to consider... He doesn't want, it feels to me like he wants to just keep the past in the past. Whatever happened, happened. Let's just keep moving forward. And maybe if we don't talk about it, it's just going to go away. Is kind of his way of dealing with everything that happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would also add, just in context of the the tithe, as you call it, Jesse, I was calling it teeth in my head. Also, right, so like every person in his court is coming to him with a payment. Most of them are coming in the form of food. That's going to go to waste because they're all like expirable food. You know, people are coming like he he wants fish off this woman or she dies. 
but he's probably going to have to throw out most of this stuff because it's going to go off anyways. So he's going to kill her because she didn't give him some more rubbish to put on the pile, just for context. Because if they mm-hmm. actually needed this to survive, they'd be getting this, okay, we'll get one twelfth of it in January, one twelfth of it in February to make it work across the year. They obviously don't need it to actually get by day to day. So it's it's purely just because it always existed. It doesn't. It clearly doesn't serve a purpose because he wasn't doing it while uh, Amarantha was in control and they didn't starve then. So it really is very redundant yep. as a ritual. And it's mentioned as well that like, kind of as an act of generosity, he delayed the tithe mm. after the events of Under the Mountain. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, unless he was going to delay them by a year or so, how are the people supposed to get back on their feet yeah. in order to, you know, still be able to to pay this and then also still be able to support themselves. Very few people, I think, would have, in that short space of time, been able to kind of re, like, re-enter their past life. Yeah, reassemble their lives. And get themselves productive and reassemble their lives, exactly. Like, mm. the whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah. And it's, it's so stated that, like, oh, he was so generous, he delayed it to give people time. Like, if, if it was really generous, he would have just said, let's do it next year. Or come year. up with a new mm. system, a better system. But yeah, it's yeah. mentioned that he, yeah. he he's doing this in exchange for protection of these people as well. Isn't that what they, they that's what they avail of by paying the teeth, that he, he protects them as their high lord. Which yeah. is kind of contradictory if, if the, you know, Amrath is gone, everything's fine, there's nothing to worry about anymore. What's he protecting them from then, you know? But um. Mm-hmm. yeah it, it's also he is the protector but that's it yeah and like so that's one aspect of him as a leader where we see him dealing with like the public but then also him as a leader privately in his home we talked about but he's also not to to well I don't think there's any spoilers but like Farah like is constantly asking him where are you going and he's going off to like face these unnamed threats and he won't tell her where he's mm-hmm. going or what he's doing She's not going to be his equal. He's made that very clear, but she's going to be his wife and he won't even tell her where he's going or what he's doing. So as a leader, he doesn't seem to value his people or, you know, he doesn't seem to appreciate or empathize with them. But also then as a leader, he's also like completely paranoid, obviously, that he he won't admit where he's going or what he's doing. He just rides off to trouble at this front, trouble at that front. Like he's not... um. He's not acting like a leader. He's acting like a, a one-man vigilante. Why do you say it's paranoia? Like, what do you what do you mean by that? As in, he's not willing to tell Pharaoh what's wrong in case she wants to help. Like, he's, you know, like, it right. seems like he's paranoid that she will help him and that I think this is going deep into the psyche of a fictional character, but um, <laughs> that that he will be seen as someone who needs her help then in exchange. Mm. So it's not just the knock-on impact of maybe some of his enemies might see that she has power, but also that some of his enemies might see that he needs help. And and probably help from a previous human woman. woman. Yeah, even though she saved them all, (laughs) even still. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think as a leader, like, there's... There's very little that he really has to recommend him other than, you know, being able to uh, to hurt people. Yeah. Jess, what do you think? I, I kind of just agree. I have no new thoughts <laughs> to add at this moment. 
Yeah, that's fair. I mean, we've said a lot about Tamlin. Do you think, do you see this as new behavior uh, compared to his behavior in the previous book? Because I feel like a lot of readers were perhaps, myself included, annoyed when I first read A Court of Mist and Fury the first time around, and I saw Tamlin behaving the way that he is. For some reason, I didn't clock this as being indicative of any previous behavior. I thought this was complete character assassination by the hands of Sarah J. Mass, and I didn't like it. Like, I didn't see why we needed to turn Tamlin into a villain. But I'm curious if you think that was this visible already, this kind of behavior on his part previously, or is it all just coming out of nowhere? I think we got, okay, so in the first book, it was sort of made clear that initially he was using fair because he knew she could break the curse. And then he kind of also felt a bit bad about that because of how his family had like had their slaves and they hadn't treated the humans well, but he was still willing to do it for a while. And then he began to fall in love with fair. And then that's when he sent her home because he couldn't stomach the whole thing. So originally he was willing to use her. And then kind of another moment that stands out for me is the night before Fair's final trial under the mountain, when instead of free, like finding a way to get rid of Fair, not get rid of her, sorry, like <laughs> free her, he just takes that moment to kiss her and said, like, oh, that's that annoys me so much. Like he could have tried to help her, but he selfishly just wanted her for himself for that last moment. Mm-hmm. Those, I think, were the major, let's say, red flags. Oh, that and like the his kind of possessiveness, um, especially on Colin Mai and. There's something else I'm trying to, I can't think of, but we've seen some seeds that, we've seen some seeds. She has sown the seeds of perhaps Tamlin is not quite all roses, let's say, mm-hmm. in the first book. So I I don't know if I think it's a character assassination. I agree that he becomes the bad guy very quickly, but, you know, he wasn't exactly the, the knight in shining armour of the first book that maybe Fair initially thought he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would add to that as well that like uh, you're talking about Tamlin before and Tamlin now and it's a character assassination. Jesse says he changes very quickly. But then also that's from the our external point of view. Like um, if, if we weren't reading from Farrah's perspective, we would say that she changed very quickly as well from being someone who could paint and hunt to someone who does nothing. True. So I think that even if it's maybe not immediately visible maybe on a first read you're just like wow this is a a u-turn for this character I actually think it's just an acceleration of his character as well so I think like his time on the mountain was just a catalyst for this type of behavior or his experience Mm -hmm. on the mountain changed him so that this was his type of behavior maybe he wasn't gonna always be like this but um like there are throughout the first book little markers of um flares of temper trying to control the actions of everyone around him, being possessive, having very little leash on his his anger. So he has like he has no thought for thinking before he speaks. Like um in in the visit with Rizand in his tea room in the first book, he's threatening him one minute and then he's on the floor begging the next and he doesn't have the forethought to think about, well if I threaten him this will make it worse. He just acts and doesn't think about it he's controlled by his temper and then obviously we're seeing that more and more now but also there's no one to challenge his temper there's no one to stop him there's no 
like looming on the horizon reason that he has to keep it together or be calm anymore because he's probably not going to start a war with another court by hurting someone in his own court or by repressing someone or scaring someone so I think he's just become who he always was going to be and it seems abrupt because we can't see the inner workings of his mind yeah I mean we definitely don't know what he used to be like before Amarantha came around you know we met him when he was already desperate as a character as a person what was it like a few months before the curse was gonna take its full effect or whatever so I do agree in hindsight or having read it now and so you know so much more carefully it does his behavior doesn't surprise me anymore I feel like all the examples that you've both already given in terms of what he did or didn't do to help Feyre in the first book. Also bringing up the fact that, you know, she was in a prison cell for three months. He could have gone to help her, to check on her. He never did. He never did anything to support her or comfort her when she was being tortured or had to do things that she, you know, didn't want to when she was under the mountain. And I wonder if he also is overcompensating for the fact that he probably felt quite powerless when Amarantha was in charge, and now suddenly he wants to make it clear to everyone that, no, I'm in charge again, I have all the power that I used to have, and he just doesn't really know what to do with it. I also doubt that he had ever any good role models about how to lead, because for all intents and purposes, his father was a not a nice person. So... I feel like, you know, unfortunately, he's exhibiting all the elements of toxic masculinity. He's an abusive partner in many ways towards Feyre. And yeah, I don't know. It makes me sad. <laughs> well, I think that's a pretty good sum up of, of Tamlin that we've seen so far. Shall we compare? We Yeah, exactly. We have to compare him yeah. because... None of this means anything, really, if we don't have anything to compare him to. Mm -hmm. So, ladies, which one of you wants to tell us about the most beautiful man <laughs> and uh, how he compares to Tamlin? Well, I think um, it depends on, on what context you're comparing him. Like, just straight up as a person, mm. we, we don't know a significant amount more in the early phase of this book about Ryzen. We kind of... For, in fact, the first few chapters, I don't think we hear a peep out of him. But even still, mm -hmm. if we compare the, his character from the last book with what we've seen with Ta of Tamlin in the second book, there is a pretty clear comparison there. Even just the memory of Ryzen to the, the present tense Tamlin is night and day, ironically, if you got the joke there. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, so I think as we go through this, we start to see Ryzen more um, so as a leader amongst company we see him and also then uh, amongst friends we see him um, as someone who can give and take orders we see him but he seems to be calm collected reasonable he doesn't react harshly he considers other people's opinions he can take other people's opinions that are contrary to his own and sometimes even change his actions based on them and he doesn't really show an excessive amount of temper. He shows temper sometimes, and he shows it, yes, in what you could consider 
a protective manner, but not in a protective manner that causes the repression of Farah as a person. And then we also see that his circle, Rison's circle of, we'll call them advisors, in terms of their technical capacity, don't fear him. They value him, they're loyal to him, they're his friends, as opposed to Lucian, who's afraid to speak up for the well-being of Farah, even as he's the second-hand man. So as a leader, as a person, we're pretty much being stacked up to like Rysand and hate Tamlin, I think. Yeah, I mean, Rysand is kind of the first person who openly confronts Farah about her deteriorating condition. He shows concern for her. He kind of gives her this environment where she can heal. He gives her something to do with herself because that's also a concern that she's now immortal and she's like what am I going to do for the next eternity he gives her purpose Mm -hmm. he gives her the space to sort herself out he gives her the choice in that you know she she has the choice to come and help him to work with him she's kind of given just freedom and purpose with Ryzan that that she's not given at all with Tamlin yeah uh, I Agree, obviously, with everything that you have both said. Reese first appears in this book in the, the most melodramatic fashion hmm. possible. Oh, it's such a fantastic entrance. I know, I love it so much. <laughs> he crashes Feyre and Tamlin's wedding because for those who might not remember or who haven't read the first book and for some reason are only tuning in now, <laughs> Under the Mountain, Reese and Feyre made a bond they can now kind of communicate with each other mentally, telepathically. He feels some of her emotions through the bond. And in exchange for him helping her under the mountain, she now has to spend a week with him every month. So he decides that the best time to come and collect her is as she's about to get married to Tamlin. Obviously, we're inside her head when this is happening so we know that she's crying out for help she doesn't want to go ahead with the with the wedding and reese shows up and he scoops her away and he takes her to the night court which i think maria you said in the previous episode that everything was pointing towards this being a complete hell on earth mm-hmm. seemingly the court that amarantha yep. copied her court under the mountain but we very quickly find out that everything is not as it seems because Feyre arrives, there's no screams of pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the most beautiful place she's ever seen. You know, the stars are bright. Everything is very open and she doesn't feel suffocated anymore. It's not underground. It's Yeah, it's not underground. Although we find out that there is a court that he is the lord of that is underground but we don't go there for a while Mm -hmm. we don't go there in this episode (laughs) no we don't go there in this episode we go there in the next episode spoiler alert but yeah all around (laughs) reese seems to be the exact opposite of tamlin and gives pharah everything that she had hoped that tamlin would give her i'd also notice that he's the first and only person that speaks up for her in the spring court as well yes he makes little remarks every time he drops her off so he Mm -hmm. ironically the high lord of the night court is her only supporting voice in the spring court 
You're right. And he is the first person to notice that she's losing or point out that he has noticed that she is losing weight Mm -hmm. and that she doesn't look like herself anymore, that she always looks tired and, as you've said, doesn't really want to do anything, spends most of her time in bed. Her spirit is a bit down. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And it only gets worse as time goes on because every time she goes back to the spring court after having spent a week with with Reese and his people, it just gets worse and worse in terms of the way that Tamlin is treating her because he's feeling really threatened by Reese and all of his actions. He's very paranoid about what's going on and what is Feyre being made to do when she's with Reese. So it gets to the point where he locks her in the mansion and that's when Feyre just explodes and one of Reese's people... Or implodes. Implodes, I suppose, yeah, yeah, yeah. Comes and gets her and... At that point, she has, I think, re, you know, hit rock bottom. She has really destructive thoughts. At some point, she thinks, basically, I wouldn't even care if someone killed me. Like, she's not afraid of Reese. She's not afraid of any of his inner circle, even though she knows she should be because they're the most powerful people around. And they could probably kill her with, you know, with just a little bit of a flick. Yeah, she thinks it would be mercy. Yeah. And Reese can read her thoughts, obviously, and he takes it upon himself to bring her out of this cycle of depression by teaching her to read, by asking for her opinion, making her emissary. Making her feel. Yeah, making her feel, teasing her, flirting with her, just trying to get a rise out of her just so that she would... Trying to get her angry, yeah, so I suppose we're all kind of team Reese at this point, fair to say. We're not team Tamlin anymore, but, you know, we're also, um, fool me once, you know, we're not going to hop straight onto uh, the ship of, oh, well, this guy's going to be the solution just yet. Or at least that's where I was. Even though, because I was like, at first, I would love Tamlin too. Right now, I just want Farah to be mm. whole. Yeah, just... Tamlin or Rezant? Yes. Are you team Tamlin now or are you team Reese? Oh, I'm firmly team Reese. However, I'm trying to remember how I was initially. I mean, I think because kind of he saves her, even at this point in the book, when I first read it, I was I was mm-hmm. on the path of team Reese. I was on team Reese by the end of the first book. But uh, once we had gone through everything here, I, I wanted Farah. Like, I just wanted Farah to, I wanted to be team Farah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're like, okay, yeah, let's somebody help this poor girl. But, but Reese is definitely the the guy that you want her to be with, not Tamlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's definitely the person we want her to, yeah, to, to be in touch with. Um, but yeah, definitely. And he has given her like a new lease. So when you compare him with Tamlin. And you mentioned as well that like, you know, some of his circle come and, and help her out. And obviously he's a huge source of help to her like firsthand. But then he also gives her a lot of secondhand supporters as well. Like he has a circle of people who all offer her support too. So they're kind of through his influence, but he doesn't he doesn't just do that. I'm the only person that can help you gimmick that Tamlin has done so that she has nobody else to go to return to. He also offers her a circle of his friends, which are more Amrin, Cassian mm-hmm. and Azriel, who we meet and who are all willing to help her 
in individual ways. So I think it's important as well that like they're they're kind of supporting characters to Ryzen's kind of character growth, but they're important as well. Like that they're great supports that she has. Yeah. So Jess, do you want to briefly tell us about these new characters and how they help Feyre? These are all members of what's called Ryzen's inner circle, which seem to be like his political advisory board, let's say. There's Amran, who is second in command. And Amran, we learn, is a tiny lady with like glowing silver eyes. And everyone is pretty terrified of her. Um, she's a bit grumpy and she <laughs> likes valuable things. <laughs> then third in command is Moore, who is like a distant relative of Reese, but they kind of just refer to each other as cousins. Moore is the person who rescues Fair from the spring court. We love her. We also get the sense that Moore has a lot of like innate power. We don't really learn what that is yet. Yes, she's his third in command. Uh, then we have Cassian and Azrael. These are two Illyrian warriors. Cassian leads Reese's armies and Azrael is his spymaster. So you already mentioned that Moore saves Feyre in the first instance, I suppose. Yes. But what are the others kind of doing in terms of helping Feyre kind of come out of her shell? Okay, okay. Well, at this point, they kind of just mostly offer friendship. Kind of later on, everyone begins to reveal themselves a bit more. But for now, mostly she just gains new friends and people who, who she can talk to, people who are, who are concerned about her. That's mainly it for now. Correct me if I'm wrong. She also gets the offer from Cassian to help her start training, you know, to give her... True. But she doesn't take that up yet, does she? No, I think the training starts a bit later, but the offer is definitely made. Yeah, yeah, the offer is definitely made by Cassian that if she wants to train, he will be happy to train her, which, again, she wanted to train her powers with Tamlin, but she was forbidden to do so. Yeah. So, again, we have this contrast. Cassian also gives her the offer to, like, you know, physically train. Yeah, as, as opposed to, like, just her powers. But also, I think the thing that um i don't know that, that that they help with her as well is that like when she when she meets them and she begins to speak with them she learns about their kind of um difficulties they they all have tragic pasts and she gets all of their stories and she gets all of their trauma and they don't avoid talking about it like uh it can be magic away you know she immediately is in a group of people who recognize and support each other for it so it's almost like it's okay for her to talk about it then which I think that's that's like the biggest change for her where she's being told you're fine don't you dare say you're Mm. not fine because you've been told you need to be straight to like a group of people who all are painfully aware of each other's trauma as well and are all willing to help each other and they've all clearly grown from it and they've all clearly healed themselves as best they can from it so you know there's clearly some kind of working method that they have to heal from these really terrible things that have happened to them all I think and then also as I was thinking about this I realized that we kind of said earlier that oh maybe all of the terrible things that happened to Lucian and Tamlin made them so blind to her suffering but then on the other hand we have a group of people who've had, if anything, worse things happen to them because they're older, but also because Tamlin spent the last 50 years sitting in his mansion. Ryzen spent it actually <laughs> under the mountain. Everybody else spent it knowing that their best friend was sacrificing himself 
24 hours a day for 50 mm-hmm. years and they are so much more empathetic to her cause so I think um they're like night and day to like all of them could be compared with Tamlin individually mm. as well yeah 100 that's a really good point and I feel like they each can relate to Farah or Farah can relate to each of them in you know different ways the fact that Cassian grew up having nothing you know he was a an orphan he had to fend for himself Farah knows what that's like or at least they can relate to each other in that way she had to fight for everything in her life once they became poor and she was hunting for her family Amran is also kind of made as in she's she wasn't always high fae we don't really know what kind of creature of power she is but they have that in common more lived in the night quarter like the court of nightmares and had to fend for herself as a as a female with you know powerful males telling her what to do what to wear what she can say what she can't say who she's going to marry so she can relate to everyone they all kind of know what she's gone through and they've given her a safe space in which to start to heal which is obviously extremely important in her character development so we all love the inner circle (laughs) yeah we do they seem like nice people I'm curious, this is going a little bit off track, but the Morrigan, which is Moore's full name, that has its roots in Irish mythology, doesn't it? Wasn't the Morrigan a... Irish queen of Something like that, yeah. Do you know anything about it? I looked it up at the time, because I was like, it's ironic that it looks like Prithian is in Mm -hmm. England but they're still using Irish folklore while making Ireland look like the bad guys. But um, yeah, I think she was supposed to be like some really strong Irish queen, but I don't remember anything more about it. Do you, Jessie? Because it doesn't sound like Irish. No, I've just done a quick Google and apparently she was also considered like a triple goddess. She was associated as the, the goddess of war, fate and finally death. So that's kind of not like, well, as far as we know, not like mm. this more. But we don't really know a lot about her powers. We just know that she she has quite a lot of power. And people seem to awe her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we know that she is, Riss says that she's a queen in her own right amongst his yes. people. She's like the queen of the Court of Nightmares, basically, isn't she? Yeah, exactly. And they've already, Riss and Fair have tried to go to the prison at this point and I think he mentions to Farah that uh, some pe- beings have been in there since Mars family ruled the north so mm-hmm. or nor- Mars ancestors or whatever so her, her her lineage once was um in fact the the high lords um from her ancestors rather than from Ryzen so like she definitely has um a very powerful past somewhere along the way so that could be just I don't know if it's a coincidence, though. It's not really a common name. It's not like he named her Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I wonder if it's going to come up later on the, you know, where her name actually comes from or what it means in terms of mythology. Because. Yeah. She does mention. Oh, no, it's a spoiler. <laughs> I don't, it. don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> so, Maria, you mentioned the prison. We've kind of glossed over the plot at this point. Oh, I love- but. Let's talk about the plot a little bit. Yeah, I just realized that. (laughs) So, 
<laughs> Maria, what is the prison? Have we have we even given a quick summary of like okay, so we know that Farah's like been robbed mm-hmm. from her wedding. Few visits, hopping back and forth like a child of custody between Tamlin and um Rizand. And then Tamlin locks her in, Rizan comes and rescues her. She goes to Moore comes and rescues her. Sorry, Moore comes and rescues her. Important detail. But she goes to Rizan's court, heals a little bit, gets the offer from his friends, meets his friends and gets the offer from them to work with them and she accepts and part of of her uh, work is learning to read and training and all these other things and um, as part of her work with Rizand she visits this place called the prison which is technically within the realms of his court but it seems to be on an island separate from the mainland and it's just a big rock that has some of the most terrible monstrous creatures that have ever been on this planet it seems have been locked in here and it's a life sentence forever they're never getting out um we find out that Amran his second in command was once in this prison and she point blank refuses to help him so when Farah goes with Rizand it's an absolute necessity and they're to see this creature called the bone carver mm-hmm. to ask him some questions and the reason why all of this is happening of course which is what Tamlin refuses to tell Farah is that there is a threat from Highburn, this country in the the West that conveniently looks like Ireland, and that um, they are where Amarantha came from, um, where she was one of the advisors to the king, this uh, Hibernian country, they're going to attack. And so this is what all of the second book is aimed towards. Farah is, she needs to heal herself so that she can help defend everyone the human realm, the fairy realm, to stop uh, Amarantha's streak of cruelty from happening again on a larger scale through the king himself. So she goes to the prison with Rizand, and a first attempt is unable to actually physically put herself into being underground. And also we kind of note from her that she's barely able to climb up to it as well because she's been so physically weakened by months of suffering. And then when she returns the second attempt she's bolstered by Amran who's Rose's second in command who tells Vera this is um, a charmed necklace that helped me get out if you wear it you know you'll be able to get out too and of course we also learned that's a flat out lie but um, Amran cared enough about her mental health to help her you know to give her a kind of a, a life jacket in a, a very tumultuous sea so she goes and visits the bone carver and then they're trying to ask him about uh, this very powerful mythical op- object called the cauldron, which they believe that the king of Utila- or the king of Hybron is utilizing potentially to basically obliterate all of them. And the cauldron, of course, it's mentioned throughout the first book, thank the cauldron or thank the mother. So it's the kind of the source of all in the, in these books. Mm-hmm. So he's basically got the biggest hand grenade in history and they think that he's going to use it against them. Yep. So Jess, why do you love the prison so much? I think you mentioned it. Yeah. Okay. Do you know the way people watch scary movies, even though they're scary and they just like it for some reason? So I don't like scary movies, but I like this scene Mm -hmm. for that reason. It's really creepy. It's like, you know, this underground place and even the guards aren't real. They're just like smoke or like spells of smoke and shadow or something the inmates are all in there everybody's listening it's just really creepy the walls and doors are carved by this bone carver who we have to meet and i just like it's it's just really cool and creepy Mm -hmm. and then of course we meet the bone carver who is himself 
uh, actually kind of cool. He has a sense of humor. He's a little boy. He seems to have known Reese for a long time. Yeah, he presents himself as a little boy with blue eyes. And we later find out that to Reese he looked like Durian, the human warrior. You also we also learn a lot. We get a lot of kind of lore or information drop in that scene, which is good too. I would also add as well that it's kind of the first time that Farah vocalizes some of her deepest traumas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When she's forced to answer questions. And he asks her to recall certain elements of, of when Amarantha briefly killed her. And, you know, how during some of the trials she was contemplating ending her own life. And she hasn't ever spoken that out loud prior to this meeting as well. So it's the first time that a third party hears her speak those words. Yeah, I mean, I love the prison scene as well. I think the bone carver is a really well-developed, spooky character. I think Sarah J. Mass so far has done a really good job in terms of introducing characters who are supposed to be really scary, villainous in a way, and then flipping them a little bit. So we had this with the Surreal in the first book, who just turned out to be, you know, misunderstood. <laughs> And the bone carver to me as well seems like for sure he's probably really evil because he has to be. Otherwise, why would he be in in the prison in the first place? But we don't know what he did and we don't really know why he is evil. But he's quite like a charismatic character. Like, I just want to know more about him and why he is the way that he is. I don't see him as being cruel, really. Like, he's very useful, and the questions that he asks Feyre are, you know, for obviously he's trying to find out something for his for himself, but we don't really know what that is. But I like how it's used as a way to, as Maria already said, for her to vocalize her trauma and just talk about things that happened to her. In a space where there is no judgment because, like, what is he going to say to her, you know? He doesn't know her. <laughs> <laughs> Who's he going to tell? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I also find it interesting. I think, Jess, you know it as well. Like, that he, he remarks to Ryzen, oh, you always were my favorite High Lord. You know, so, as you said, he's a charismatic, interesting character. And clearly, other High Lords have come to him before. Mm. Because how could mm-hmm. he have a favorite if Ryzen is the only one he knows? So he's probably been a, yeah. a someone that that many many high lords or well yeah only high lords can access it or or high lords kind of workers who have permission. He's clearly a source of information for a lot of people. So he does seem to be quite a popular. He seems to have knowledge that how could he have this knowledge? Honestly, mm. from within the prison. Like I I wondered how does he yeah. know this? He's been an inmate. He also seems to have a prophetic capability i'm not sure if we learned that yet maybe that was a spoiler this is something as well i was thinking about i was going to ask you guys because i misunderstood this so many times until actually this reread when they're de- this is detailed but anyways when fair and risen they're departing he's gifted with a bone from risen that the bone carver is gifted with bone from risen so you never visit him without giving him a bone he's the bone carver so he carves um he carves images into bones and as they're living he says to Farah, I'll carve your death into this bone mm-hmm. I thought he meant her upcoming death I only realized he was carving her death with Amarantha into oh. the bone 
I thought I always read mm-hmm. it as a threat. I read it the same way you did as well. But I know. Yeah, go on. I I was always like, oh, he's been so nice and hospitable and a little bit cheeky, but you know, and also Fair is afraid of him, but Ryzen seems relatively at ease. And then he's like, I'm going to depict your death. Your and I was like, that's kind of rude. <laughs> but um, <laughs> then I realized. Yeah, I, th- that- I thought the same. I was like, I'm gonna like. In a sort of ominous, threatening way, like I'm going to carve your upcoming death fair. Yeah, but she's already died. That's that's what yeah. I think it actually is. Come to think of it. Okay. But I'm glad that I wasn't the only one that got duped. It could be either, you know. Either way works. Like, if he's going to carve her death that has already happened, that I mean, that's also kind of creepy, you know. But if he's hey. going to carve her upcoming death that nobody knows when that's going to be, how does he know when it's going to be? Mm. And then it makes him kind of the ominous threatening yeah. being that he probably is yeah yeah um, either way so it's I think creepy it works both ways but one way it's creepier than the other <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. exactly yeah 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 but yeah what no, did you guys right, think Jess. of our other entity who the Here's weaver entity the weaver ah sorry i was just gonna say one last thing about the oh, protheticness yeah. ah. of of the bone carver i'm just gonna be rude and jump back in Yes, he is already kind of shown to be a little bit prophetic or like he knows things that we don't know how he knows them because he appears as Jurian to Reese, and we the readers know that the reason they're going to the prison is to find out about, you know, how is the King of Highburn doing what he's doing because Reese suspects that he's going to resurrect Jurian. So Jurian mm-hmm. was this mortal man from 500 years ago whom Amarantha killed and then kept his eyeball in a ring, etc. So yeah, how does the bone carver know to appear as Jurian to Reese when they first arrive? I mean, I would beg the question how he knows to appear to Farah as well, so that he's obviously incredibly <laughs> tapped into their psyches. <laughs> he's in the know. Is he also a mind reader, you think? I think he has to be. Well, also because, I mean, look, I I know very little about the science of powers, but to make himself appear to each of them, um, because Mm -hmm. they're both in the same room, he can't be altering his physical appearance, right? So he can, he has some control over their minds um, at the very least. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. But yeah, and he can use it even in the prison, which is interesting. But yeah, yeah, definitely. And then also, as Jesse mentioned, there there is a another entity as well, the Weaver. Yes. So Jess, tell us tell us about the Weaver because I love the Weaver her. is another fantastic creepy character. Except, whereas the Bone Carver has some charisma, the Weaver is just straight up like gross and terrifying. So, Fair is sent to retrieve an object of Ryzan's from the Weaver's cottage, and the purpose of this is to see if she can detect an object that is kind that kind of like contains the imprint of a high lord if she can with each with okay if she can by having within her a grain of their power if she can kind of present herself and retrieve something of theirs let's say mm-hmm. so she has to go mm-hmm. to the weaver's cottage so it's you know pretty average looking cottage in the middle of nowhere Woman inside singing, we can't hear anything. Fair has to go in. And it's a bit of like a hoarder's mess. She has to find this object, which it turns out is a ring. She finds the ring. But once she touches it, 
the door slams and like let's begin the horror moment of uh, the chapter the weaver i think has no eyes she has a horrifying physical appearance she has this long hair she seems to really care for her hair and her dress but beneath that she's like a horrifying monster and she basically tries mm-hmm. to kill fair or maybe even eat her we don't even know but it turns out she has like a loom with hair that we are led to believe has come from her victims and their skin and it's it's a horrifying place but yeah we don't really know what the weaver's power is we just know that she's pretty terrifying we know it's substantial because far- high lords or fear being associated with anyone who messes with yes, her. Yes, no one would dare interfere with her with her, yes. And it's like, they've mentioned that in the woods, the it's like the strongest person rules yeah. the woods and it's implied that the weaver is at the top of the food chain. Yeah, and Rysand even says about how he tried to, to trick Amarantha into messing with the weaver and, and she didn't, bearing in mind, of course, that at this point in time, Amarantha had successfully defeated the seven high lords together. And she still didn't want to mess with the Weaver of the Woods. So, you know, in terms of... uh, And also, she's not in a prison. So, in terms of danger levels compared with the other monster that we've met so far, it's a different level. Yeah, I love the Weaver chapters. They are so incredibly spooky Mm -hmm. and creepy. They have this sense of, you know, the old grim fairy tales about yes. the creepy granny in the cottage who's going to eat mm-hmm. you. <laughs> Everything looks so idyllic, and so you feel like you're just in this nice, safe space. I mean, Farah herself realizes that it's the perfect trap. It kind of lulls you into this sense of security mm-hmm. of, oh, if I'm lost at the end of my day, I can just go into this cottage and someone will take care of me for the night. And, I mean, even the song that she's singing is so... It's creepy. creepy. Everything, just the the whole atmosphere of she's in there and she's not supposed to make any noise and she's just supposed to take this thing and then get out as fast as possible. And it just builds and builds and you're reading it and you can... I can picture it so clearly in my mind, which I very rarely can, But like, if this was a movie, I can exactly picture what it would look like. You know, we would zoom into this loom and how she slowly starts slowing down (laughs) until she just stops and it's silence. And then she... Doesn't it feel like Farrah is doing another challenge? Yeah. Doesn't it feel like the challenges? It feels like she's by herself. Yeah. The adrenaline. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about it, but it is. And it's an important moment for Farah as well because she gets trapped in the cottage obviously and she can't escape through the door she can't escape through the windows so her only option is to climb out of the chimney and as she's climbing out she has a moment of panic where she just freezes and she doesn't know how to get out she's you know, she's stuck. There's something really greasy on the inside yeah. of the chimney, which is, oh, again, it's like, you feel like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, it's so what awful. Is happening? <laughs> oh, I honestly think uh, I might have given in if I was fair at that point. You know, I'm like, I'm just gross anyways. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But she gets over it, you know. She, she has a moment. It feels like she's going to give up. And then she finds th- the strength within herself to 
keep going, to keep fighting. Mm. And, you know, we find out that this is kind of what Reese was going for. One of the reasons why he sent her to the Weaver is for her to be able to overcome her fear. So she manages to escape. She gets on this roof, which oh, again, oh. Ugh, it's just covered <laughs> in reaction and everything. No, it's not good. Oh, and she's covered in the and it fat. All sticks to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so awful. And then she can't jump off because the weaver comes out of the cottage, and now she's like flying through the trees. And then she gets to Reese, and he's just like lounging on a tree branch somewhere it's like oh what took you so yeah. long and <laughs> yeah ah it's so good yeah and so also good. i mean I, one of the things she does in her bid to um escape the weaver is she sets all of the weaver's uh hair on fire and throws a brick in her face oh i love that she yeah. she burns some of that nasty stuff yeah she has incredibly angered this very very powerful person as well so there's not just like the <laughs> the horror at her physical state but also like i feel like her life is more in danger in those few moments than it ever was yeah you're like what have you done fair yeah oh, what have you done mm. Ryzen? but um yeah yeah no it's <laughs> yeah. horrific i and she mentioned something about like the hair tickling something on her oh, face it's just and awful. i actually oh i just oh. I, I actually gagged. <laughs> it's so disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. So we all have similar expressions it's of so repulsion bad. here, I think. But yeah. <laughs> this is an audio media, so just to give the you know, the treaty feeling we're all horrified. <laughs> I also really like though It really makes me Sorry, go ahead, Lucy. Yeah. I was just gonna say it really makes me wonder how Reese's mother even gave her the ring, because we yeah. find out that the ring that Fair had to go get was belonged to Reese's mother and she had left it there for safekeeping. She's like, how mm-hmm. did you even communicate with the weaver? How does I she think have she flew it? over and is, dropped it and stayed going? Like I think she didn't. Like I'm not stopping there. Is all the stuff in her cottage was all of it given to her by people for safekeeping, or did mm-hmm. she steal it? Where did it all come from? So many questions. Well, I mean, she has victims. That's true. Yes. Yeah, I think she. Uh, but like, I mean, some of the things are incredibly powerful that she has. I think because high lords covet them, send people in to steal mm-hmm. them back, knowing the risk. Well, they don't anymore. But um. Yeah, I think she she must have been outside of the cottage at some point. That that's what I thought, you know, that she's in the cottage now, but that she must have like gained some of these things through her own power. I don't think she was always in the cottage. Jess, what were you going to say? And I interrupted you. I, oh, I was going to say um yeah, another reason I love this chapter is kind of because of what you were saying is that we have this first moment of fair where she really believes in herself again and she kind of what am I saying? She like she has a moment of inner strength and she remembers, look, I can do this. I have these gifts now. I'm strong. I can fight. And after she kind of masters her panic, that's the beginning kind of of her, of her getting her herself back in a way. So we didn't quite mention this, but it's really important to the plot. So the King of Hybern wants to resurrect Jurian. In order to do this, he needs the cauldron, which is the thing that Maria was referring to. And... The reason that Reese sent Feyre to the Weaver, as Jess already said, is to see if she can use her powers to identify objects belonging to other High Lords, because there is a book 
that they need to get from the summer court, which allows them to then use the cauldron to whatever, negate its powers. So this is another test of Feyre's abilities. And we're going to talk more about that in the next episode. But basically, before we wrap things up, we get a look into Reese's past and his interaction with Ianthe, who is one of the characters that we mentioned previously. So do either of you want to tell us about the disgusting thing that Ianthe did to Reese? We we get a, a vision from his mind, so we know it's true, where Ianthe had visited his court and he mentions how there were already rumors uh, about her, that she was kind of, she was trying to use her female charms to get her way but that when she goes to Ryzen's court she when she had gone to his court she had allowed herself into his rooms and had attempted to seduce him and then had refused to take his outright no and continued to kind of assure herself that no like he wants me and she uh, was like very possessive towards him when she had no right to be and didn't respect anything that he said and basically was kind of very predatory towards him until he obviously displayed his powers and I think he did he break her hand or did he just cause it a lot of pain he contemplates killing her for it which I think Farrah also recognises that like a few years later then he finds himself in a similar position with a female who who decides that she can do whatever she wants with him or to him and and he has to he has to agree later on, which kind of also gives us a little bit of perspective on his, his suffering. But yeah, she's a very different version of Ianthe to what we see in the spring court where she's pious and where she's knowledgeable and she's seen as a confident woman rather than an aggressive woman. There is one moment in the spring court, though, where Fair overhears. It's in the discussion around Fair's gifts. And Fair overhears a conversation where Ayant I actually suggests that Fair could be used as like, I can't even remember the quote, but it's disgusting. It's like essentially that they could use Lone Fair out for breeding purposes with the other High Lords to kind of as like a as a tool of power within the spring court essentially i think in that context she's threatened or she's saying to to tamlin that other high lords would try to use fair for that way and she's using this to to stop tamlin from giving fair any liberties or any freedom so she's using his fear of this happening oh yeah. okay i mis- maybe misread it then i thought it was that she was saying it as like but think of what we could achieve with Ferris powers. Actually, it is important that you way. brought that up because obviously she's recognizing, yeah, that firstly that the Tamlin should be the only person who gets to use Ferris as a as a breeder. But also that it's pretty it's gross. disgusting. But then also, once um, she said, "Oh, other High Lords might see her potential as as like uh, being half the genetic pool." of offspring and they might attempt to take her for these reasons and then I think Lucian is the one who says nobody would do that you know there'd be war if any of the high lords tried that and then she says well Ryzen would do it you know aren't they who had assumed to like force herself on Ryzen and who was rejected 
said without blinking that he mm-hmm. would do that, which is obviously an outright lie and a contradiction to her own behavior. Yeah, I mean, she's a she at the beginning she's portrayed as, you know, what Maria said, pious and just so understanding of Feyre and so willing to help Feyre. But we do also I mean, it's also noted that she's very power hungry. Yes, and we do also get the sense that she has been seeking out males for company. Uh, Lucian is very uncomfortable around her. He doesn't really want to spend any time with her one-on-one. So you do kind of get the feeling that perhaps Resand was not a one-off. You know, she she might have tried to force herself onto other males as well. Hmm. And she has power. She's so, in a position of power. Like she's a. She is in a position of power. Yeah. She's a priestess. Yeah. So. yeah. I mean, she represents the whole whatever religion they have, mm-hmm. we don't really know what it's supposed to be about, but there are numerous priestesses and she is the one who has the most power, it seems, and has managed to weasel her way into the spring court. And Tamlin pretty much does everything that Ianthi says they should do. Mm-hmm. He kind of falls in line. He even supports her more than he supports Fair. Absolutely, like, yeah, yeah. Something with the wedding dress is like Fair hates it. Even Tamlin kind of laughs at it, but then he's like, no, Ayant knows better. We should take her advice. Yeah. Even though it's your dress and you're the bride. Yeah. Ayant Yeah, and he discusses Farrah's powers with Ayanthe, even though he won't discuss them with her um, and training. Yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah, we see that uh, she's the uh, exact opposite of, of what we thought, just like with Tamlin. So we're pretty much at the end. Uh, one last thing to round off the plot we leave our characters in the human lands because they've decided well no they haven't decided they need to get in touch with the human queens because the human queens have the second half of this book that can control the cauldron so Resand has named Feyre as emissary to the night court to the human lands and they want to go visit Nesta and Elaine and ask them for their help in creating basically a base of operations in their mansion in the human lands so that they can then have a meeting with the human queens is where we end chapter 23 is there anything else you'd like to discuss that happened in the first 23 chapters that we didn't get to I think we covered a lot no I think I'm the same I think so as well so we've done good time ladies so I think we'll wrap this episode here and thank you for joining me. See you next time. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about us and the podcast, visit our website at readingmaterialspodcast.com. We also publish additional content, including blog posts around the world of books and our thoughts on the topic. If you'd like to get in touch, Email us at reading.materials.podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at readingmaterialspod. Until next time, keep reading.